All right, we are live. Thank you to everyone tuning in today. Today, I am live with Dr. Michael Brown. He's the founder and president of Fire Ministry in Concord, North Carolina, and the host of the daily and nationally syndicated talk radio show, The Line of Fire, as well as the host of the Apologetics TV show, Answering Youth's tough, Your Toughest Questions, which airs on the NRB TV network. He became a believer in Jesus in 1971 at 16 years old as a heroin shooting LSD using Jewish rock drummer. Since then, he's preached through America around the world, bringing a message of revival, reformation, and cultural revolution. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Brown. Glad to be with you. Sweet. So, I mean, we'll jump. I guess we can just jump right into it here. Uh, my first question for you is maybe if you want to give a little bit of your testimony, a little bit how you came to Christ, because, I mean, you have a really cool testimony to see how God was working in you. Sure thing. Yeah, so I was born in New York City and raised on Long Island. And even though we were a Jewish family, we weren't religious Jews. In other words, we weren't in synagogue every uh, Sabbath. We were not strictly keeping the Sabbath or living by the dietary laws or things like that. But we were very conscious we were Jews. And as Jews, we had our beliefs and Christians had their beliefs. So I did go to Hebrew school for a few years. Uh, I, I did go to synagogue on the high holidays. I was bar mitzvahed. But that was really more of a social event for me than a spiritual event. If I had been a very religious home, it would have been different. But this is in the 60s now, so it was Bar Mitzvah in 1968. To give you the cultural context, the Beatles came to America in 64. I had started playing drums the year before that, so the whole rock scene got my interest and the rock bands got my interest. So when I was 13 years old, later that same year, I saw Jimi Hendrix in concert, and that really in increased, intensified my desire to, to be involved in rock music and the rock culture, and started playing in a band, and then started getting high. It all just seemed to be kind of the spirit of the age and what I wanted to be doing. And I discovered that I had a high resistance to drugs, and that I was able to use drugs in higher quantities than most other people. So I very quickly got into harder drugs and experimented more and more. So I went from, from pot to ups and downs and LSD. And by the time I was 15 years old, I was actually shooting heroin, which in my mind, before that, that's just kind of what criminals did. And, and that was inner city stuff and, and, and people stealing to keep their habit going. And here I was growing up in the suburbs of Long Island. My dad was the senior lawyer in the New York Supreme Court. My mom and dad happily married. My upbringing was fine. And yet I was living this crazy life and very proud of it as well. So when I was 16 years old, my two best friends started going to a little gospel preaching church. We used to get high together and party together. But they started going to this little gospel preaching church. And I uh, didn't like the fact that they were going. They liked two girls who were going. The girls had an uncle uh, who was the pastor, and their dad was praying for them. So God started working on their hearts. I I, I saw it was going to tear our group apart if they really get serious about God. So I, I thought the whole thing was crazy. I went to the church to, to pull them out. That was August of 71. And these people were very loving towards me, began to pray for me, and the Holy Spirit began to work in my life. And I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit but I became increasingly uncomfortable living the sinful lifestyle I was living. And at the end of the year, I, I, the light went on. I went back to the church. I, I knew that Jesus really died for me, but I, I wasn't willing to change yet. And I wrestled with that for about five weeks. 
until that point of surrender came in December 17th of 71, when I said, Lord, I'll never put a needle in my arm again. And from that moment on, I was free by God's grace and my life transformed. And my parents said, great. My dad said, Michael, it's great to see the change in your life because they, they knew my life was messed up. They just didn't know how badly. Uh, they said, it's great to see the change in your life, but we're Jews. We don't believe in these things. So my dad brought me to meet the local rabbi. The local rabbi befriended me. Uh, began to challenge me to learn Hebrew, and I spent many, many hours in dialogue with him and other rabbis in those early years, and, you know, always the challenge to learn Hebrew. So when I started college, I started taking Hebrew classes, ended up majoring in Hebrew, and then ended up getting a master's and PhD in Near Eastern languages and literatures from New York University. And obviously, I, I really got into the subject matter, and I really enjoyed the studies, but what got me started was the desire to be able to read the Hebrew text on my own and understand its meaning on my own and not have to rely on what a commentator said or a rabbi or a dictionary that I'd be able to understand these things for myself. And I was often challenged. I studied well all with non-believing professors. Some of them were religious Jews. Others were totally secular, atheists, some hostile to the faith. So I never studied with any believers. So I was always getting my faith challenged, either in my dialogue with rabbis or in my secular education. And I took the challenges on. I thought, okay, I know the Lord's changed my life. If I'm really following the truth, then there'll be answers to all the questions. And of course, the more I studied, the more I learned, rather than my faith being torn down, it was strengthened overall. So in a nutshell, my story was from LSD to PhD, but I shared some of the things that I think would be relevant for your viewers. And what gives me incentive to come on and do the interview with you is I want to encourage other young people to get interested in apologetics and recognize how important it is that we have solid answers for these serious questions. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. It's a really awesome testimony to see how God worked in you. And I agree with you that we do need big answers to the big questions that we face in life. So I want to talk mainly today about Jesus and why uh, you and I believe that he's the Messiah, but mostly why you believe he's the Messiah. So I just want to start off, maybe if you could give a brief summary. So you come from a Jewish bringing. Why do you believe that Jesus was the Messiah? So first thing in my own life was experience. In other words, before the intellectual arguments, before looking at the Messianic prophecies, he changed my life. I, I was not looking for God. I believe God existed. I didn't believe Jesus was anybody of importance to me as a Jew, uh, but I had no interest in God whatsoever. And it was the prayers of these people in the church that drew me in. The Holy Spirit began to convict me and work on my heart. And, and then when I cried out to the Lord, he dramatically changed me. So he worked in my life when I didn't want to change. Once my heart opened, he dramatically changed me. And that was 47 and a half years ago. And I've seen God work in so many extraordinary ways in my life. I've seen him answer prayer. I've seen his leading and guiding. I've experienced deep, intimate fellowship with him. So first thing is, is the experience of transformation in my own life and my ongoing walk with him all these years. And then the second thing would be the testimony of scripture that I can make a strong biblical case that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel based on scripture, that if he's not the Messiah, that we'll never have a Messiah. So first 
is the experience in my own life. And then secondly, and the thing that's, that's uh, verifiable that we can present to everyone else because my own experience is still mine, but I can say, but here's what the scriptures say. And if I'm speaking to a religious Jew, that person believes in the inspiration of the scriptures as well. And therefore I can point to this and say, hey, look at what's written in scripture. So obviously there are a lot of prophecies. We could look at a lot of things we can discuss in that regard. But ultimately, if I'm, if I'm speaking to someone and they say, well, everybody can have an experience and I'm not going to believe your experience. Fine, fair enough. But what does scripture say? That's what we'd look at. And that to me would be the ultimate proof that Jesus is our Messiah. Yeah, I agree with you completely here that the best, that what can be our, the best evidence for God is our own personal experience with God. So I want to talk a little bit about these prophecies that Jesus fulfills, at least as Christians, we believe that he fulfills. So if you could just highlight on a few before we go into some objections, what are some of the key prophecies that you believe that Jesus fulfilled? Right. I, I want to look at the broad stroke of things first. And I want to see that when God called Abram, Abraham, he said that through his seed, the whole world would be blessed, all the nations of the earth. So God's choosing of Israel was not to be exclusive, but rather through the people of Israel to bring blessing to the entire world. I want to emphasize that. So we go from God's choosing of Abraham, then it's Isaac, then it's Jacob. Then in Genesis 49.10, 49, we see that the Messianic king will come through the tribe of Judah. And to him, the obedience of the nations will be. Once again, we have nations mentioned there. Then when we, we study further on, we see that the, the royal line comes through David in the line of Judah. And that David is the prototype of the Messiah to the point that in Exodus 37, the Messiah is called David. So David is the prototype of the Messiah. But we see, interestingly enough, that not only is David a king, but David also functions at times as a priest. And Psalm 110 says to him slash the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see that the Messiah, represented by David, the prototype, is a priestly king. That ties in with passages like Zechariah 6, where Joshua, the high priest, whose, whose name is also Yeshua in, in the Hebrew scriptures, Joshua, the high priest, is set as a type and sign of the Messiah. And he sits on a throne wearing a crown, and he's called Semach, the branch, which in Jeremiah 23 is a messianic title. So the, the high priest Joshua stands as a symbol of the Davidic king, again, reminding us that the Davidic king is a priestly Messiah. You see, why is that important? Because the priests were dealing with sin. The priests were making atonement for Israel. The priests were carrying the guilt and burden of Israel on their own shoulder. When the priest died as the representative intercessor of the nation, someone who had committed unintentional manslaughter, Numbers 35, that person would go free. In other words, their life would take the place of the others. That explains to us why there are passages in, say, the book of Isaiah that speak of the sufferings of the Messiah. Why does he suffer? He suffers because he's bearing sin. He suffers because he's interceding for us before God. Again, 
the Messiah being a priestly king. So in his suffering aspect, he comes to make atonement. So we see in Isaiah 42 that this Messiah, this servant of the Lord will be a light to the nations. We see in the 49th chapter of Isaiah that it will appear that he fails in his mission because his own people reject him. God says, not only will you be the one to regather Israel, but you'll also be a light to the nations. Then we see in the 50th chapter that he suffers scorn and, and mockery and beating for his obedience to God. Then we see in the end of the 52nd chapter of Isaiah that he'll be highly exalted, but only after suffering terribly. And then in the 53rd chapter that follows, we see how this servant of the Lord will bear our sin, will take our place, will take the guilt that should have been ours, even while his own people don't recognize him. So here we have extraordinary passages about the Messiah suffering and dying for our sins, being rejected by his own people, and yet being a light to the nations. Those are quite extraordinary. Those then tie in with passages like Psalm 22, which speak of a righteous sufferer delivered from the jaws of death and whose deliverance brings praise to God to the ends of the earth. Jesus brings that to fulfillment. It may have been written or spoken by David, but nothing he experienced lives up to that. Messiah brings it to the fullness of meaning. So you have those suffering passages. Zechariah 12 will tie in at the end of this age as, as the Jewish people look to, to the one they pierced. They'll be looking to the Lord in recognition of, of the sin of rejecting him. And that's when mercy is poured out. So we have that whole stream of passages. Then we have passages that set a time within which the Messiah must come. Haggai 2 tells us that the glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple. God will fill it with glory, which has to go beyond silver and gold when it speaks of being filled with glory. And yet we know the second temple didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, didn't have Aaron's rod, that budded, and, and some of the other things that were in the original Ark. Uh, we know that the divine fire was not there as it was in, in Solomon's temple. So in what way was the second temple, the glory of that, greater than the glory of the first temple that was destroyed in 70 AD? Malachi 3 tells us the Lord himself will visit that temple and bring purging and refining to his people. And then Daniel 9, 24 to 27, tell us that before the second temple is destroyed, God will bring in atonement and everlasting righteousness for his people. So he asked the simple question, how was the glory of the second temple greater than the first? Well, obviously, that's where Messiah came, performed miracles, and poured out his spirit after his death and resurrection. That's when the Lord himself visited the temple. That's when atonement was made for Israel. So we have those passages that, that lay out when the Messiah must come and begin his mission. And then we have two different pictures painted of the Messiah. For example, Daniel 7, he comes in the clouds of heaven, but Zechariah 9, he comes riding on a donkey. It's not either or, it's both and, first riding on a donkey, then coming in the clouds of heaven. And then you have scriptures that indicate his birth will be supernatural, which we derive from Isaiah 9, we, we see his divine nature in passages like Isaiah 9. So these would be some of the major, major passages and themes that I would emphasize in opening up the scriptures. And if I could only read one passage and, and just ask a Jewish person, who does that speak of? 
I would obviously read Isaiah 53 as the most persuasive of them all. Yeah, definitely. That's a great brief case for what I had for you was Isaiah 53. So it's cool to see how God could be working there. So my question for you, the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, isn't the Messiah. Those are from and the first one is that Isaiah 53 is speaking of Israel. So let's, I'll hear that one. So why would you say that it's not speaking of Israel, but of Jesus? All right. So first let's understand why there's some rabbinic interpretation that says Isaiah 53 is speaking of Israel. Starting in the 41st chapter, God refers to my servant Israel. And, and refers to Jacob and Israel as his servant and says that they are his witnesses. So you could say, look, Isaiah 53 speaks of the servant of the Lord, and that's already been defined for us as Israel. So the first answer to that is that elsewhere, the, ser the servant is clearly not Israel. Like Isaiah 49, where the servant is an individual who is identified with Israel, in other words, that that he embodies the mission of Israel, but he is called to regather the people of Israel, to restore the Jewish people. So he, he's obviously not Israel there. And many rabbinic commentators say that refers to the prophet. Many rabbinic commentators say when Isaiah 50 uh, speaks of the servant, that's also speaking of the prophet. There are rabbinic commentaries that say Isaiah 42 is speaking about the Messiah. So the first thing is, the servant of the Lord has different meanings in Isaiah chapters 41 to 53. So we start there. The second thing, Isaiah 53 cannot possibly speak of the people of Israel as a whole. It's not possible because the servant of the Lord is righteous and yet is suffering terribly. Whereas the nation of Israel, according to the, the Torah promises, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that if the nation of Israel is obedient, then they will be blessed and not cursed. If they're disobedient, they'll be cursed and not blessed. Yet the servant of the Lord suffers terribly as a righteous servant. So it can't speak of the nation of Israel as a whole, nor did the sufferings of Israel bring healing to the nations. Some rabbinic interpreters sharpen the argument and say it's speaking of the righteous remnant within Israel. Well, that would make more sense because as the nation is being punished for sin, the righteous can be caught up with that. So Daniel goes into exile with his people, even though he's righteous. So how can we say that Isaiah 53 does not refer to the righteous remnant? Well, very simply, the suffering of the righteous remnant does not bring healing uh, to, to the nations. Rather, when Israel suffered unjustly in the nations, God punished those nations. He said it several times in the scriptures that uh, he would make a full end of the nations that mistreated his people in exile. So the suffering of the righteous remnant does not bring healing to the nations. It brings judgment on the nations. So those arguments are commonly used, but for many different reasons, they break down entirely. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you on that. So the next one is kind of similar. Actually, just I was listening to the William Lane Craig and Ben Shapiro talk. I don't know if you listen to that, but they're talking about why Ben, a Jew, says that he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the biggest things was is that he believed that the Jews expected the Messiah 
to be a political or a military leader, not who Jesus was. Because Jesus definitely didn't change Israel that much in, in a place. He didn't save them from the Romans because obviously the Romans would come sack them in 70. And so how do you answer the objection that the Jews were expecting a political leader rather than a spiritual one almost? Yeah, so many Jews were expecting a, a political leader or a, a warring Messiah, uh, but they were mistaken in their expectation. The question is, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture predict? That's first. Second, many Jews were not expecting a warrior Messiah. There were different expectations at that time. Uh, there was uh, a, a view that there would be a priestly Messiah as well. The Messiah was being looked for by some just as a great teacher, uh, so, so there are different perspectives on it. And through Jewish history, uh, for example, the, the most prominent false messiah in Jewish history, Shabbatai Tzvi in the 1600s, uh, was not a political messiah in terms of a general or leading an army or anything like that. Uh, I, I sent a note to Ben. He didn't write back to me, but I, I just shot a note to his private email and said, hey, you, you overgeneralized there because there have been many different views about who the messiah will be in Jewish history and in ancient Judaism. And the political Messiah is just one of them. So the question is, uh, were Jews mainly, or were many Jews looking for a political Messiah or a war in general? Many were, but the question is, is that what scripture says? And uh, the answer is obviously, no, that's not what scripture says, especially that the Messiah had to come and suffer and die as part of his mission. Will Jesus come at the end of the age and destroy the wicked. Will Yeshua come and set up his kingdom on the earth? Yes, he will do those physical, tangible things at the end, but the only one who can fulfill the end of the mission is the one who also started the mission, and that's Jesus. Yeah, 100%. So I wanna talk a little bit here about going in kind of a different tangent in a way, still relating to Jesus, and two objections to the virgin birth of Jesus. So the first one I'll go through is where Matthew, well, they claim that he'll misquote Isaiah 7.14 in Matthew 1.23, where he talks about, he says that Jesus is born of a virgin, but the original Hebrew in Isaiah 7.14 says it's that the woman who would give birth to the Messiah was a young woman, not necessarily a virgin. So they'd say, you know, gospels are being faked, I guess, or here or something like that. Yeah, so this is one of the very first things that, that I heard as, as a new believer, and, and it was you know a really big issue, and, and how was I going to sort it out and all that. So let's break this down on a few levels. Uh, first, Isaiah 7, reading it seems in context to be speaking about a child that's about to be born at that time. And most logically in the context, it's a rebuke to faithless King Ahaz, and the enemies, northern Israel and Syria, uh, want to invade Judah and, and take out Ahaz and put their own man on the throne. And God answers that with what he's going to do. So you could make a good case to say that it's a prophecy about a king to be born in the line of David or someone to replace godless Ahaz. But in its immediate context, you wouldn't identify it necessarily as a messianic prophecy. So that's the first thing we want to remember. The Hebrew itself, Hineha Maharavi, or let it Ben, is, is most naturally translated, uh, look, the, the maiden is pregnant and about to give birth to a child. But in context, again, this is a sign that God is giving, a supernatural sign. 
Now it goes on saying before the child grows up to be a certain age that, that the enemies will be destroyed. And it does call him Immanuel, God with us. There's great debate among scholars and in rabbinic commentaries as to exactly what the sign is. But we see there's a, a birth of supernatural importance with the child identified as, as God being with us. That's part of the sign. When you keep reading, you see in Matthew, uh, that Matthew also has Isaiah 9 involved in his mind. He quotes it in, in the fourth chapter of Matthew. And there we have the prophecy in Isaiah 9 about the king to be born who will be called mighty God. And then we can see, if we dig deeper at the end of Matthew 2, that he has Isaiah 11 in mind, which is a clear messianic prophecy about the, the shoot, the branch, uh, from, from the root of Jesse and the line of David. So all that to say... Matthew, I believe, is looking at Isaiah 7 through 11 and saying that this promise to Ahaz about a king about to be born, and it's a birth of supernatural importance or power, is ultimately fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. In other words, there may have been a child that was born then, but the scriptures don't address it. There are many messianic prophecies which were spoken at a certain time and point, and, and they had a relevance then, but they were never fulfilled. The fullness of the word never came to pass, and we understand we're still looking for that. So that's how I understand Matthew's looking at it in terms of larger context. Secondly, Matthew's we have it is written in Greek, and Matthew simply quoted from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, completed roughly 200 years before the time of Jesus. And the Septuagint translators instead of translating Alma the way they, they normally would with, with Neonis, which is just a, a young maiden or a girl, they translated instead with Parthenos, which can just mean a young woman, but more particularly means a virgin. So Matthew is simply quoting from the Jewish-Greek translation of his day. He simply could have quoted it. Let's say he was writing it in Hebrew. He would have just quoted the Hebrew because the Hebrew is still speaking of a supernatural birth or a birth of supernatural importance or a supernatural child, something supernatural about it is a sign from God. And an Alma typically would not be one bearing a child. In fact, Rashi, who's the foremost Jewish commentator, says, says on that, that some think the sign is that she was just an Alma and it wasn't suitable for her to have a child. So there's a big blow up over this, but there needs to be no blow up whatsoever that Matthew, looking at this in larger context, recognized it as messianic, quotes the Jewish-Greek version of his day. I've had people say, well, Parthenos doesn't always have to mean virgin. Well, fine, that's what he quotes, and that's, that was the translation of the Hebrew. So uh, in the early days, this was something I spent endless hours over thinking we had to you know, win this big argument. Then I realized there's, there's really not a big battle to fight over this. Uh, Matthew sees a larger context with great spiritual insight, quotes from the Jewish-Greek translation of his day, and the prophecy is just as powerful even if we left it in Hebrew with Alma, because the sign is the larger sign. So this Alma in particular was a virgin, which is what would have been expected for a young woman uh, who had not yet had a child. Yeah, definitely. I want to throw just a... Do you think it's possible... Just losing you here for a second.
Right, so if you've got me, my internet connection is good, but we seem to have frozen out for a moment. Not sure what's going on. You hear me? You hear me? Yeah, are you back? I have no idea what happened there. Oh my gosh. Sorry. It just like died. I have no idea. It's just really weird. Yeah, I was good on mine. I, I did a Facebook chat last night and it dropped out twice for no good reason. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it's good now. I think everything's coming back up. I don't know. It be Wi-Fi problems. I mean, All right, yeah, we'll, give, we'll give it one more shot. I know you were you were just going to push back about Isaiah seven, and then I, I lost you. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question. Do you want to just go on with that? I think we're broadcasting right now. So yeah. All right, yeah, for back broadcasting. Okay, uh, try once more because you were cutting out as you were asking me your question. Okay, um, I'll try again. So my question for you was going to be, this is just kind of a wild theoretical question, I guess you could say. Something just popped into my mind. Do you think it's possible that Mary wasn't a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus? Oh, no, no. It's clear from the text in, in Matthew 
that Joseph doesn't have any relations with her until after she gives birth. So Protestants believe that after Mary, Miriam gave birth, that she and Joseph then had a normal relationship and she gave birth to other children. Catholics believe that she, she never was with Joseph, never had sex or anything like that. I don't, I don't believe that's what the text says. No, it's certainly though, she was conceived virginally and delivered while still a virgin. Yeah, Matthew's clear on that. Yeah, I agree completely. I just kind of just popped in my head for some reason. So the second objection I had to the that I found from the virgin birth, a common one, is the idea that Paul never refers to it. And I mean, Paul's epistles, most of them are obviously written earlier before the Gospels. So first, it, does Paul mention it and mention them? And am I mistaken here from the resources I was looking at from the non-Christian side? And if he doesn't, why doesn't he mention the virgin birth? Well, first out of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke mention it explicitly. Mark just begins talking about the, the Son of God, and John goes back to his e eternal origins. So only two of the four mention it explicitly, which means they didn't all need to tell the story. And, and most of Paul's letters are written dealing with certain situations and issues. So he covers certain ground in them, but he's not, he never gives us a biography of Jesus or anything like that. Uh, but we, we, we do have a few texts that, that could tie in with this. You know, for example, in Galatians 4, it says that he was born of a woman born under the law. Now, there are a few things Paul is saying there, but the fact that it just speaks of him as being born of a woman, that could imply that also. Um, and, and then it says, uh, Romans 1, 3, concerning God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. Uh, there's the question about descended uh, from David according to his, the flesh. Does that mean that Paul thought that he came through Joseph, his father there, or that Paul understood that Miriam, his mother, Mary also would have been a Davidic? Uh, we don't know, but, but the fact is there's no reason that Paul would be expected to talk about this uh, it's, it was not necessarily a point either that was in dispute or that he needed to reference. For example, his strongest emphasis about the resurrection, his greatest teaching, and when he lays out, hey, this is what I was taught, this is what I learned, this is what I'm sharing with you, is 1 Corinthians 15. And the reason that comes up is because he's dealing with controversies about the resurrection. So, yeah, we have, we have no need to press that. Uh, the, the fact that two of the four Gospels are explicit and that John speaks of the eternal origins of the Son and that these things were all believed by the same uh, folks that Paul was writing to. I mean, they're all part of the same believing community uh, means it really wasn't an issue or a controversy. It's, it's a very weak argument from apparent silence. That's all it is. Yeah, I agree with you completely on that. So obviously the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled are really amazing if you look at it and if they happened. So my question for you is, is it possible that the New Testament writers created a figure that fulfilled the prophecies? Maybe Jesus didn't actually fulfill all these things that they talk about him doing in the New Testament. And that they just kind of, maybe he existed, but they just kind of, when they wrote the gospels the couple decades later, that it was kind of more of, they just tried to, Created a perfect Messiah, I guess you could say. Yeah. So there, there are two contradictory lines of argument that you'll get. 
One is that he didn't fulfill the prophecies. The other is that the New Testament writers rewrote his life to make it look like he fulfilled them. So did he fulfill them or not? In other words, if they rewrote his life allegedly, why would they rewrite his life if it wasn't to fulfill prophecy? So there's, there's a contradiction there. But let's address the question of, okay, maybe they fabricated things, they changed things. We weren't there to see it. We don't have video camera evidence or anything like that. So maybe they fabricated things so as to, to make it look like he fulfilled prophecies. The problems with, with those arguments are, are many. Number one, there was not a widespread expectation for a suffering and dying Messiah. In that regard, Ben Shapiro would certainly be right. So why would they now create a scenario to fulfill prophecies that people were not expecting to be fulfilled? In other words, they did not have a clear understanding that there would be a crucified Messiah or something like that, a rejected Messiah who would rise from the dead. So why create a scenario to say he did the thing that most people were not expecting him to do? That's number one. Uh, number two, we see in those very accounts that the followers of Jesus didn't get it. When he kept talking about he was going to die and rise, they didn't get it. And after he died, they were despondent. They thought it was all over. What changed everything was the resurrection. What changed everything was they encountered him after he rose. So that was a total shock to them. Uh, if they were going to create something, it would have been, yes, he said he was going to die and rise. And when he died, we weren't despondent because we knew he was going to rise, except they recorded like, we were, we were completely discouraged because we didn't get it. And, and when he rose, we were still shocked. We didn't believe it when we heard the first reports. So that's another strong argument against it. A third would, would be this, that he continues to do the impossible, that he continues to work miracles around the world. How are you going to manufacture in the first century that this little-known Jew, a carpenter from Nazareth, is going to become the most influential figure who ever lived, the, mo the most famous Jew in history, and, and that his name would be known to the ends of the earth, and that through him, hundreds of millions of people would come to worship the God of Israel. How are you going to manufacture that or make that happen? Uh, and then so many people have their lives transformed and experience God's power through the name of Jesus did the disciples manufacture that also? Did they manufacture it 2,000 years ago that he would set me free and transform my life? And that even as you and I are speaking, he's answering prayers and saving sinners and appearing in dreams to Muslims and on and on. No, that, that's only because he rose. And then fourthly, if he didn't come and begin his mission before the second temple was destroyed, there can be no future Messiah. So the argument completely breaks down on many, many fronts. Yeah, definitely. So the next thing I want to talk about is the idea that Jesus did, didn't claim to be God in the New Testament. Because, I mean, I've, I think that you can't, he doesn't go and say, hey, I'm God. But so what are those things you look at in the New Testament that point to him being God? Yeah, so if, if he just said, hey, I'm God, that would create tremendous misunderstanding that would give the impression that God was no longer in heaven, but had just taken on human form and was walking among us. And since we believe that God is triune, he's complex in his unity, he's Father, Son, and Spirit, 
since we believe that, then what would it mean if, if he said, I'm God, that he's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? I mean, what would it actually mean? So it would be quite misleading if he said that. Nonetheless, he does make some unique claims. Uh, he, he says in John 10 that he and his Father are one. You said, yeah, but he prayed that we would be one. Well, but then he says in John 14 that he's in the Father, and the Father is in him. And then he says in John 17 that he enjoyed the glory of the Father before the world began. So that speaks of his preexistence. And then we have in John 8, 58, that he says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I was, would have meant he was claiming preexistence. That would be radical enough. But before Abraham was, I am, is associating him directly with Yahweh. So these are just things from his own mouth. The passages where he speaks about being sent or coming down from heaven, those also speak to his preexistence. And then in Matthew 28, 19, in the Great Commission, he teaches his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how in the world does a mortal man, a glorified man, get put in a formula of baptism along with the Father and the Son? So in, in quite a few distinct ways, his forgiving of sin, the authority with which he spoke, in quite a few distinct ways, he clearly identifies himself as being God. And, and then when Thomas, who didn't believe before the, he saw Jesus after the resurrection, uh, he didn't believe until f before then, he falls down and says before Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, now you believe, now that you've seen me? Instead of rebuking him, he commends him and says, hey, you know, took you enough time to finally believe. So yes, he made these claims, but he made them in a way that would, would leave mystery, that would leave understanding that there was still a heavenly father sitting enthroned in heaven, that there was still a Holy Spirit working among us. So he did not say things in a way that would create a wrong impression, but one that would cause us to dig deeper into his identity, which of course the rest of the scriptures clearly declare him as, as eternal and divine. Yeah, definitely. So a lot of the passages you quoted here for the divinity of Jesus come from John, which was written most likely in the 90s, 80s, a few, like a couple decades after the Gospels, the other Gospels were written. So a lot of skeptics will use the claim that, hey, you know, the idea that Jesus was divine comes in later. So it's only mentioned in the late, the last Gospel written, John. So how would you respond to that claim? Right, so then we look at Paul's writings, right, which, which were written earlier. Obviously, there are oral traditions passed on, but we look at Paul's writings and we see in, in different places his references to the deity of Jesus, the best reading of Romans 9, 5. He speaks of him as God over all, blessed forever. 1 Corinthians 8, he has a reformulation of the Shema, Hero Israel from Deuteronomy 6, where he says we have only one God, the Father, and only one Lord, Jesus. So just as the Father is also Lord, the Son is also God, but even to refer to him as the only Lord, uh, Titus, which most would date a little bit later, speaks of our God and Savior, Jesus. Uh, so we have clear witness there to, to the deity of Jesus in the writings of Paul. We also recognize that the Gospels may have been written down at a certain time, but most likely the traditions behind them were being passed orally, 
uh, for decades. You have to remember that this was primarily an oral society. So you had the written scriptures and the sacred texts, but most people learned by memorization and most traditions were passed on orally. Uh, you know, for example, the, the Talmud, according to Talmudic teaching, it was forbidden to, to write down the traditions. So here you've had, you know, ultimately thousands of pages of things being passed on orally until they said, okay, we're scattered. There's too much persecution. It's difficult. We're going to have to write them down. But here you've got a body of literature much, 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 much bigger than the Bible. And it was primarily being passed on orally uh, over a period of, of several centuries and developed orally. So uh, we don't want to make the, the writing the big issue. Uh, we want to look at the fact that you, you have, for example, in, in the book of Acts, that you have Stephen praying to Jesus in, in Acts, the seventh chapter. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where does something like that come from? Uh, and, and when you have this other teaching about the deity of Jesus, there's nowhere where it's rejected. If, if you go to 2 Peter 1, it references our God and Savior, Jesus. When you go to the book of Revelation, uh, the Father says on the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then Jesus says those words about himself, that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the first and the last. So uh, you, you've got all these streams together, and then there's nothing in Mark, for example, that contradicts his deity. He's referred to as the son of God. He has the power to forgive sin. In, in, in Mark 14, he's going to be seated at the right hand of power. And there's a clear son of man reference in, in Daniel 7. And the son of man is, is worshipped uh, and adored by the nations. So it's not like early texts say he was just an exalted man and later texts say he's God. No, we have a steady stream of witness, be it Paul, be it truths in the book of Acts, uh, be it uh, statements in Mark that are maybe not as overt as John. So it, it's, it's all there. It's reaffirmed in the different streams. And then again, uh, we understand that was the case because these things were being passed on orally for, for decades before finally being put in, written, in writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So the last question I have in terms of Jesus here for you is one that I think is probably one of the most common statements from non-believers, um, probably outside of academia, though. And that's the idea that Jesus was a great man, a great moral teacher, but I don't believe that he was the Messiah. I don't believe that he rose from the dead, things like that. So how do you, how would you recommend interacting with someone who would say that, you know, Jesus, I believe Jesus is a great moral teacher, but not God or Messiah? Right. I first ask him, how do you know anything about him? How do you know about his great moral teaching or anything like that? To see if they accept at least parts of the, the Bible as being uh, uh, credible or authoritative or anything. So, so, you know, like about the teaching of Jesus, how do you know it? So, well, it's written in the Bible. I, I just don't believe the other stuff. So, okay, so let's look at what Jesus said. If you think he was a great moral teacher, you start reading from the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't take long for the great moral teacher to condemn us all as hopeless sinners. That'd be the first thing. I, you know, if you, if you really appreciate this teaching, isn't it interesting that it condemns you as a sinner? Then I, I, would, I would say, how do you explain the fact that these men who were despondent and hopeless when Jesus died, uh, now everything turned around and they were willing to die for him saying that they saw him rise from the dead. How do you explain that? We don't have examples of that, of mass hallucination, where everyone believes they saw this person rise from the dead, but all religious cults and fanaticism. Where do you think the story came from? 
And then I'd say, what do you do with like the prophecies that he fulfilled? How do you explain that? And then bottom line, I'd say, well, what do you do with the fact that people call out to Jesus all the time and, and he answers and he does impossible things and, and he, he changes lives? Who's doing that? How is that happening? So I'd, an I'd answer it intellectually as well as experientially. And then, you know, the, the old C.S. Lewis argument, you know, that he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. You could always bring that in to say, well, if you respect his teaching here, he's the same one who said these things about himself. Now, they might just say, well, I don't believe those things. I only believe the others. And that's where we try to let his words convict and, and then ask, okay, since he's convicted you and, and you fall so far short, what are you going to do about that? Yeah, definitely. So that's all the questions I had in terms of Jesus here. I did want to talk something about on a more fun note, which was the Apologist March Madness tournament, because I owe a great gratitude to you because you really embraced that and it really took off and it turned into a really great thing in large part to you really finding that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, what happened was, uh, I had no idea this thing was was going on, and I didn't know uh, who you folks were about you know what what you were doing, and I I just saw something with David Wood and Mike Winger. I I, I knew of Mike's work just a little bit more, but but we had not interacted uh, directly before then. He he'd written to our ministry with some thoughts and some useful things uh, that that he wanted to share, but we had never really interacted directly. David Wood and I had on a few occasions, so I. I saw that, I thought, that's funny. And then I looked, and next thing I saw, oh, you got this tournament going on, and, and, and I'm in it. So I guess the first round, I was up against someone that, that may not have been well-known and, and, or as well-known, and so, you know, so I won. So now I was in the, in the, the second round here, and uh, it just happened to be a Sunday when I was home, and I saw I was up against uh, Robbie Zacharias. I mean, Robbie's a giant and apologetics and respected worldwide and all that. But I thought, let me just have a little fun here. And uh, I, I, I just began to post that, you know, just having fun with it. And next thing, people really started to get into it. I thought, you know, if this will get people learning about different apologists, seeing names there. I mean, I had certain, like my friend, Dr. James White was on the list. You know, others I thought should have been there. But obviously, you're being, you know, selective and just having fun with it yourself. But, but anyway, I thought, well, maybe there could be some good that comes out of this because, People will will find out. Maybe they, you know, maybe younger po folks didn't know Lee Strobel as well, or some, you know, didn't know William Lane Craig, or some didn't know Norman Geisler, or you know, whoever, or, or, or Jay Warner Wallace, or you know, whoever was up there. So I I just decided to have a little fun with it and uh, contacted my producer and his dad. They do a lot of the you know, the memes for us. And I said, all right, I need a graphic, you know, with me and Robbie Zacharias. And I actually sent him a picture of, you know, uh, two boxers. It was Anthony Joshua and Joseph Parker. And my intent was when they fought, because Joshua had a few belts and Parker had one, that they'd make Ravi the guy with a few belts and me the one with one. But it ended up being <laughs> the other way. So next thing, like with, I, I start catching Ravi. And I thought, oh, this is the funniest thing. I'm just going to post again. Can we do it? There's like 10 minutes left. And suddenly I, I passed him. I thought, oh, that is just too funny. So at that point, I thought, I, I'm just going to have a little fun with this and, and uh, you know, get into it just purely for fun and, and to in, have fun interaction with others. But in the midst of it, what was also happening was people were sending me all these notes 
appreciating things that we had done. So I was getting these cool testimonies and then others were posting testimonies about others. I thought, okay, cool. That's fun. We'll keep having fun with it. So I, I ended up, you know, beating Jay Warren Wallace and William Lane Craig. And they probably had no idea this was even going on. You know, if, if they pushed <laughs> with their social media, they, they would have won. And then, then it came down to, to Mike Winger and me in the semifinals. So we both decided to get into it. You know, he posted a video, I posted a video <laughs> and it was like neck and neck. I won by like one or two percentage points, which got me into the final against C.S. Lewis. And, and, you know, Mike sent me a note. He goes, if you beat C.S. Lewis, then it's a real embarrassment, you know, it makes the whole thing a sham. I said, so we were just joking about okay. it. So C.S. Lewis beat me like 55 to 45. If it had a realistic vote, it would have been like 99 to one. But e either way, as fun as it was, so when I played it out, I played it out fully in, in my total competitive mode, you know, just like when I'm playing mm -hmm. ball, I'll go for it and trash talk. And then when it's done, we're just laughing. I don't if I want to lose this immaterial. So I got into it in that way, but, but I actually thought, you know, this is helpful. Then when I saw that you were mentioning your, you know, your Twitter followers were increasing, I thought, okay, cool. We'll just give this like a little shot in the arm for apologetics. And when I realized that, that, that you were a young guy doing this and things, I thought, okay, good. Let's send some encouragement. So uh, yeah, I ended up really having, having fun with it, uh, making it into a, a bit of a, of a game. Uh, but I saw some edifying reasons for doing it. Hence my involvement and participation. And really it, it reminded me of how many fine men and women are out there, especially men that women haven't gotten into apologetics as much just as women do a lot of things men don't do, but how many fine people are out there? Uh, how many voices there are? how many specialists there are in areas where I have no specialization. And then it also reminded me once again, how few Jewish apologists there are, how few there are who specialized in dealing with rabbis and, and Messianic Jewish apologetics and things like that. So uh, that was another reminder. We need to keep multiplying and raising up disciples in, in that regard. So yeah, I, I just, just want to tell you in advance though, that uh, uh, if, if you do it every year, I, I, I may not get involved with the same zeal and let, let others, uh, rise to the occasion but i couldn't resist it at least that one opening time yeah definitely i mean you can do whatever you want i mean i'm planning on running it every year not just i mean it's really fun but at the same time one of the coolest things like you said the takeaway is how it just kind of you just see it just gives mentions to all the apologists you can really give these apologists and see like hey there's all these people out there which is really cool to see yeah. and i really appreciate you helping kickstart which hopefully can be something for the future can really promote apologetics and like, cause I've noticed uh, apologists talked about how it really increased their following. It's really excellent. It was a really great thing. Yeah. Good. I'm so. glad to hear it. And look, Josh McDowell said that objections and issues that he, he would be dealing with say with college age students. And now he's dealing with kids that are 12 or 13 or 14. So what's happened is they are, getting the same things passed on through social media in popular form and bite-sized form. They don't even have the intellectual capacity, say of a, of a 20 year old to process it. They're going to process it through a 13 year old brain, which is going to be a difference there. And, and maybe with our culture, they're going to be used to processing things in a much more sound bited way. And therefore we, we've got to figure out ways to, to speak to younger people in simple ways uh, you know, for me, whatever I'm going to say that I could write a book on, I want to try to be able to, to tweet on as well and mm -hmm. then just you know, catch 
phrases, little things that get attention and, and, and sound bites, try to communicate those and then build on that with truth, with real study and depth. So there's a great need to, to do this, especially for young people. So many objections are just kind of commonly out there and, and we need to have good, strong, solid answers. And then above all, introduce people to, to the living God himself. Yeah, 100%. I think I agree with you because I think in social media, you know, you can just literally put out whatever you want out there and people will, if they trust someone, they'll just believe whatever they say, regardless of whether yep. it's true. So yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on today, Dr. Brown. I really appreciated it. My joy to do it. God bless. Keep up the great work, man. Yeah, God bless. So I'd encourage everyone who's listening, you can follow all of Dr. Brown's amazing resources. I have links to everything in the description. Be sure to subscribe to us. You can support us with our blog or you can follow us on social media. You can support us financially as we're trying to reach our goal of $200 a month in fundraising. So I thank everyone for listening and have a great night.